0: we are uh, in Genesis chapter 24 again today, started in this chapter last week and we got about a dozen or so verses into it and uh, we want to pick up where we left off last week and uh, hopefully get down through about verse uh, 28 or so. Uh, today, Lord willing. So uh, let's just read the passage, uh, first 28 verses of the chapter, uh, and then review what we covered last week and go on from there. Now Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, Please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Suppose the woman is not willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Then Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of good things of his master's in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. He said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say... Please let down your jar so that I may drink. And who answers, drink, and I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milka, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin, and no man had had relations with her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, let me drink a little water from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw, and she drew for all his camels. Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel And two bracelets for her wrists weighing ten shekels in gold. And said, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? She said, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Again she said to him, We have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge in. Then the man bowed low and worshipped the Lord. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. Then the girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. Okay. Well, as I said, we looked at the first uh, 10 or 12 verses or so. Uh, last week, you know, what do you remember that we talked about?
1: It's important that
2: um, he not take his son back. He wanted to stay in the covenant land and be what to You know that this was the land his
3: son would always have to discuss, always okay. God's and
1: okay.
0: okay. Stick with the promise. Yep. Stick with the promise. What else okay
3: yeah
0: yeah it's not a it's not an option we unfortunately oftentimes in the church today we take that pretty lightly and we think pretty lightly of people marrying outside the faith, but God takes it quite seriously. <laughs> and Abraham took it quite seriously. You marry within the faith. And uh in, in this case it involved the servant going back to uh to uh, Abraham's original uh land back to the land of Haran uh in order to secure a wife from among his family. I was
3: Mm-hmm.
0: a and, and Abraham actually does in this case narrow it down uh um uh, how do I say this he 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 specifies that the servant is not to take a wife for Isaac from among the Canaanites but is to go back and get uh get a wife from among his family back in Peyton Aaron, okay? And that's what he specifies. But then the servant raises this question. What if what if I can't get her to come back here? And and Abraham says, and he says, shall I take Isaac back to Peyton Aaron? Shall I take him back to, to, to live among your relatives? And, and, and as Debbie was pointing out, Abraham was very specific. No, don't do that. And obviously, the reason is because he wants him to stay in the land of promise. But the thing that we saw from that, the, the application we drew from that, that it wasn't it wasn't enough that Abraham married within the faith, because he could have he could have gone back to he could have gone back to the city of Nahor and married within the faith, but he still would have been outside of the will of God. And so, it's not enough just to marry within the faith. But we must also be careful that we marry within the faith, within the will of God. Okay, and that narrows things down even
4: more. Okay.
2: How tell you put an application to that today. Is the the family of those people involved under the transport, or you know what I'm saying
0: here? Well, I think that, that may get a little subjective at this point, but I think oftentimes young people just think well it doesn't matter who I marry just as long as I marry a Christian and I think it does matter do you have do you have like vision do you have uh, in some degree like theology you know and and you have people you know Christians think well it doesn't matter if i you know I, I believe this but here's another person as long as they're a Christian it really doesn't matter what else they believe or how they live their life or what their goals are or what their objectives are and I think to the degree that a young person has has some sense of what God wants of their life, they need to be very careful that when they find a mate, they find a mate that fits within those parameters of what God has shown them and what God has taught them in their lives and that they not compromise those things in the heat of the passion of wanting to get married. Does that answer your question? <laughs> okay uh I, I, like I say, I think to some degree that gets uh, somewhat subjective at that point, but I think you still mean God's direction those things. That'll bring up, incidentally, the issue of God's providence and how do we know when God is leading. And those are some things we're going to talk about today. God's providence and seeking signs and those sorts of things. So we'll look at some of that stuff today. So I
4: have not seen an analogy of what I want did with Christ coming to earth and coming to Mm-hmm. And I had uh, got to thinking, I've made a couple of statements in the last few years. Somebody, somebody, about, well, if your Christianity doesn't cost you something, it's not real. And I got to think of like, just mad and popping off over the set sound. And I thought about this, In fact that Rebecca had left everything to go even though it was free for her and it was all offered to her as a gift, she nevertheless had to give up her life mm-hmm. the way it was to mm-hmm. go and accept it. Yeah. And it kind of invalidated what I
0: was thinking. Yeah. It's kind of like Dietrich Bonhoeffer's costly grace idea, isn't it? Yeah. And, and, and as we go through this story, we're going to see that Rebecca really is a, a striking parallel to Abraham himself because she does exactly what Abraham does. She just gives up everything. Uh, she has a lot promised to her but abraham had a lot promised to him too okay and uh, she has a great promise but she takes it all by faith and by faith she leaves everything she has and everyone she knows and she goes traipsing off with this stranger riding on his camel off to some unknown land to meet some unknown guy and marry him and commit her life to him and uh, as we go through this story we'll see what remarkable faith this young woman has she is a Rebecca is, uh, is a stunning example to me uh, uh, of character and qualities that that uh, that I value for my own life and certainly in the lives of of, of others. I want to see these same qualities. And, uh. The
2: same you know, from her rather wayward perspective, did you see those things that you we were talking about? I you mean, saw that it was either of own family.
1: The the and the funeral, so like, you in yeah,
0: and I'm not going to answer that question yet. We're going to we're going to save that because I'm trying to draw this story out for two or three weeks. <laughs> so some of those things are things we'll get to, but there are important questions, and I appreciate your thinking about it. Well, I thought to
1: right? something about how English, English,
2: it was uh, was like parallel to us presenting as a messenger. Mm-hmm. I mean, that how
0: the analogies are the... He's the evangelist. Yeah, yeah.
2: That, yeah. that is to show forth the glory of the Son mm-hmm. and the inheritance mm-hmm. that the Son is going to receive yeah. to draw us to that place where we're willing to say, I, you know, if I really understood what was out there to be given in the promise, there was a no question that you would give it up. Yeah. You would give up your... Yeah. Sacrifice.
0: And one thing, too, that's interesting is, you know, I, like I told you, uh, I think I told you this last week, is that I, that I think the servant here is Eliezer. It doesn't actually name him here, but it, it seems by the description is probably Eliezer. But it is interesting that throughout the entire chapter, he's not named at all. He's just the servant. He's, he's just this anonymous person. And and I think the significance of that, as one commentator points out, the significance of that is that is that his identity isn't important because the the person whose identity is important is Abraham and Isaac. Those are the those are the people who are important. So in so in in, in the in the narratives in the narrator's, narrators uh, uh, purpose here, what he's trying to do is he's trying to, to show that the servant here is just he's merely an intermediary. Yeah. Even though he's central to the story, he's only an intermediary. He's just a representative. And the real the real people here that are important are Abraham and Isaac. And and that, too, is the role of the evangelist. We want to decrease and for him to increase. And, and that's what the servant does here. So, you're going say, well, I'm going to be ahead of you,
4: but to me, the most thing that stands out the most in this chapter is I'm wondering how much water can Ken? <laughs> we'll get to that.
0: Yeah. We well, I have an answer to that question. <laughs> carry
4: that much water.
0: Okay, we'll get to that. That's a good question. (laughs) You (laughs) know,
4: like the guy, that's why they started in the morning and then it picked
0: up. I
1: think in my household where some discussion over who gets the dog. Yeah. (laughs) Who's going to water the dog. That's right.
0: That's right. Well, let's get into that because I know you're all dying to know how much water can a camel drink. There's a couple of things
1: I wondered
4: about. The first verse was kind of a Almost a throwaway verse that I imagine you probably could have taught a whole Sunday school lesson just mm-hmm, in that first mm-hmm, verse. Mm-hmm, Abraham being blessed in every way and the ramifications and what what it took for that to happen in his life, uh, faith.
0: And We've been spending six months on that yeah,
4: verse. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of sums up a lot of things. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and the other thing I was kind of wondering about, it, that you didn't really address it, and I don't know if it's I don't want to get too much into it, but in verse 4, Abraham says, he tells this man, you'll go to my country. And I'm wondering, it almost sounds like Abraham hasn't quite identified completely with this land of promise. And we see other evidence that he, well actually the story evidence that he has identified, but in some ways, maybe I don't know if he's just referring to it as that country, or if he's really saying my country. And I'm not really here. That much yeah. country back from there.
0: Yeah, I I don't I don't personally read much into that. I I think I think it's just his way of referring to where he came from. You know.
4: Yeah. Uh, it's hard to It's hard to tell, and you, there's really not any indication. Yeah. You know,
0: when I drive through Missouri, when I drive by Joplin, I always think, you know, that's the place of my birth. You know. Haven't been there since, other than driving through it since I was two years old. But I just kind of, you know, that's that's the and so I have a connection there. But as much as I hate to admit it, by now I'm probably an Okie.
1: <laughs> 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 <laughs>
0: Although yesterday I was wearing a Nebraska Cornhusker t-shirt all day. So but, okay, yeah, that's right. I know. I know. So well, let's get on because there's a great deal to talk about in the passage. Uh, today. We 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 left last week with the, with uh, the servant had had left on his journey and he'd taken all these possessions with him or not possessions, but all these things with him that he wanted to use to impress uh, uh, whoever he was going to encounter with the greatness of Abraham and the greatness of Abraham's uh, inheritance and the greatness of God's blessing on Abraham. And he wanted to make that very clear. Both to both to extol Abraham and to extol Isaac, Abraham's son, whom this girl would obviously be marrying, and and then he arrives in the city of Nahor, and 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 that's kind of where we left the story. He arrives there, and he comes to the well outside of the city, and he has his camels kneel down there, uh, and uh, and and then he just then he uh, enters into this prayer, and uh, just as a as a um, uh, just a point to note there in verse 12, it says, He said, O Lord, the God of man, and he goes into this prayer. And and one of the things that's, that uh, is interesting here is, and, and I think is important to note, is the way the prayer is introduced. It's introduced simply with the phrase, He said. Okay? And there's actually some significance to that. That, that, be, that because of the way this prayer is introduced, this phrase, He said... The idea is that uh, it's, it's demonstrating or it's communicating the idea that this is a fairly informal prayer. This is a this is kind of a more kind of a personal conversational type of prayer. Okay, this there's not a lot of formality here in in the way the servant addresses the Lord and. One of the things we want to keep in mind as we go through this story, and and I wanted to point this out to you, is is as we go through the story, at each stage in the story, I want to encourage you to stop and ask yourself, what do the characters in the story know at this point in the story? Okay, because if you do that, I think you'll find the story far more exciting and far more interesting because we know the whole story. You know, you've read this chapter before. You know what happens. You know the outcome. And you know all this information. But as we go through the story, keep in mind, what do these various characters know at any given point in the story? So what does the servant know at this point in the story? What does Laban know at this point in the story? What does uh, Rebecca know at this point in the story? Keep those things in your mind as you go through the story. uh, And and I think it will uh, help to kind of ignite your imagination and kind of see what, what God is doing here from their perspective. But so so the servant comes and, and he comes to this to this city and he doesn't at this point he doesn't really know anything other than he knows the promise that Abraham gave him before he left, which was what? That God's angel would go before him. Okay? And so it's just very natural then when he gets to the city and he goes, Okay, I'm here. What does he do? He doesn't go into this big formal, you know, prayer with prayer wheels and, and recitations by rote and all that sort of thing. But he simply talks to this angel that he believes has been with him on his whole journey. And he just offers up this prayer. OK, and and that's I don't know if you ever think about that, but well, that's one of the things that's really unique about our faith, isn't it, is the nature of prayer. You know, there's a great deal that's made in many religions about the whole idea of prayer. But I don't know of any religions outside of the religions of Scripture, Judaism, and Christianity, in which prayer is this personal, intimate, spontaneous relationship with a living, personal, intimate God. You know, just... Thinking, I don't want to be critical, uh, unduly critical of other religions. But, but just thinking of the contrast between, for example, the Muslim faith and the Christian faith. And the Muslims make a big thing about praying. It's a big thing to them. They do it five times a day. And there's, but it has none of the life and dimension and personalness and intimacy that, that a Christian prayer has. Uh, oftentimes, unfortunately, as Christians, we can fall into the trap of praying by road and praying very formally and praying by ritual and that sort of thing. Uh, but the thing that stands out to me here is this servant has learned to pray in this very personal, intimate way. Where has he learned that? Probably from Abraham, hasn't he? <laughs> He's lived with Abraham all these many years. He's the oldest one in Abraham's house. And for all these many years, he's walked with Abraham and he has discovered that the God of Abraham is this very personal, intimate God that on a moment's notice, in a moment of need, we can just speak to him and he hears. And so he speaks and he, and he prays. And what does he ask for? Pardon? Success. success, okay. And how is that success going to be determined? Okay? He sets out a fleece, doesn't he? He sets out a sign. He says, God, how about a sign? Okay? Now, does that make you nervous?
1: <laughs>
0: we remember what Jesus said when Jesus said it's an adulterous and wicked generation that craves after a sign. Yeah. And so the question is, when this guy is... You know, this guy is obviously devout. He loves the Lord. He walks And he prays for a sign. He asks God to give him a sign. And he specifically stipulates, okay, this is what I want, God. I want you to do this for me. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, the question is, was he right or wrong to do that?
3: Depends on what, church you're in. <laughs> <laughs> what church was he in? <laughs> <laughs> the
0: Church no. of Abraham.
4: No, in, in this church here at City. <laughs> I don't know what the answer would be. I know in some churches in this city, they know
0: absolutely, yeah, we should do it that way. And others would say, oh, no, I'm never do it that way. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's
0: true. Well, I think one of the things we need to do is we need to ask ourselves, what does the Scripture really say about this practice? Okay? And one of the things that's clear is is what Jesus said at one point uh Some of the religious people came to him and they said, we want to see a sign. And and the Lord said, as I mentioned in in Matthew 12, he says, wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it. But the sign of Jonah, the prophet, i.e. the resurrection. OK, and so and so Jesus in that situation is very critical of them seeking a sign. Okay, but in in other situations in Scripture, individuals ask for signs or signs are involved and there's really nothing critical said about them and here's a classic example the story of the servant where he asks for a sign and there's no indication at all that the Lord is displeased with that in fact before he's done praying the Lord is already providing him with a sign the other example of course is Gideon and Gideon gets a lot of flack for putting out a fleece but the interesting thing is God never criticizes Gideon for putting out a fleece and he, and he complies with Gideon's request not only that, we have the psalmist in Psalm 86, and he prays and, and he asks God to give him a sign for good. Okay. And in Isaiah chapter 7, the Lord speaks to King Ahaz, and he says, you ask me for a sign. He commands the king to ask him for a sign. And the sign ultimately the Lord gives in that case is what? Yeah, the virgin birth. Okay, pretty significant sign to be asking for, right? So, what we discover is it's not so much a question of whether or not someone's asking for a sign, the question is what's the context? What's the framework? What's the, what's the disposition? And what we discover in the New Testament with Jesus, in a couple of questions, he's very critical about this thing about asking for signs, because of who's asking and why they're asking. You remember during Jesus' trial, that when Jesus is sent over to Herod, when, when Pilate sends Jesus over to Herod, Herod's really quite pleased to have Jesus sent to him. Why? he He wants to see a sign, he wants to see a miracle. he's heard all these heard all these stories about you. He wants to see one, so there's just this this desire this a desire for a sign that comes out of idle curiosity. I just want to see something cool, you know and there were a lot of people in Jesus' day who wanted to see his signs for that reason. Then there were others. Uh, like the religious leaders who in Matthew 12 have come to Jesus and asked for a sign. In their case, they're asking for a sign as a as 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 actually as a temptation, as a test of Jesus. Okay, so they're really just testing him and they really have no intention of believing him. They're looking for a cause to stumble him or a cause to blame him for something. And so they're asking him for some miracles. They want something, some charge they can bring against him. Okay. So there are clearly motivations for seeking a sign that are that are invalid and inappropriate in those place in those situations God is not pleased. There are other situations though in which as we've seen here in these examples we've cited in which the person really is coming with a humble spirit and with a with a real honest and complete intent to give heed to the sign and act accordingly. And in that case the Lord is not does not appear in any way to be opposed to sign. Rick, you wanted to say something?
3: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. yeah yes yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah yeah we
0: have some other options don't we yes that he clearly intends for us to uh yeah that he clearly intends us to follow um
4: yeah Maybe you know, I, I can identify it, but, uh, you know, have so faith, but I, I think if you're kind of in the desert uh, and you don't know where some of us are and our faith is somewhat weak, to ask for a sign through the desert is fine. If you're on a highway and you just passed 25 signs that say Oklahoma City turned right, yeah. 40 miles, and you miss them and you ask, where is Oklahoma City? like Guys that were after Jesus has seen how many.
1: Absolutely. Do them. He yeah. won
4: more for us, and we're brilliant.
1: Yeah. I think that's the
0: difference. Yeah. 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 I think that's the important distinction to make. So actually, I just this morning, as I was finishing up prepping prepping for this lesson, I I just thought, well, what what are some principles that we should keep in mind in in this question about whether or not and when or whether or not we should ever request. A sign uh, in this sense, and, and I think the first thing obviously is there has to be an, an absolutely sincere desire for direction from God. It's not a matter of you know I, I you know I want some kind of you know I want to see something you know exciting or whatever, but I really am in a position of humble dependence and need, and out of that humble dependence and need I come to God, uh, and I think like the example that uh that mike was just giving you know that's not a person who's humble that's a person who's stupid you know and there's a difference and do i need a sign from god because i clearly am without any direction or do i need a sign from god because i haven't been listening and those are two different things uh so one is a sincere desire and a direction from god a second thing that is is just that is that what we see in the servant here is he comes with a, an attitude characterized by humility and he's not demanding a sign. And one of the interesting things is in those couple of those contexts in the New Testament, these, these people came and they were demanding signs from Jesus. But what we see with Gideon, what we see with the servant, what we see with the psalmist is that they came with a spirit of humility rather than demand. Uh, and then to kind of bring out the sign that I think or the, the point that Rick and, and Michael were both making is I think that the, 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 the use of signs in, in achieving direction or finding direction from God, it's, it's in, it, ought, it is and ought to be infrequent. It is not the normative way in which we find God's will for our life. God has given us abundant direction in his scripture. He's given us abundant direction in his word. For almost all decisions that we have to make in life, okay. But we have, for example, in this situation, uh, you know, I don't know any scripture that would have applied in this guy's situation. How is he going to know who this woman is to be, okay? And so I think, as a general rule, we should consider this idea of seeking and searching for signs to be something that we infrequently rely upon, but rather that we typically, more often, rely upon. The clear instruction of Scripture and the working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And then the last point, and this one will bring out as this, this will come out more as the story unfolds. But even if we do ask for a sign with all the right criteria, and even if God in His grace does provide us with a sign, that sign needs to be kept in perspective. And what we will discover about the servant here is he does not rely exclusively upon the sign. It's a help to him. It's a guidepost to him, but he does not rely exclusively upon that. And we'll see that as the story unfolds. Okay. Well, all that being said, that's just some meat to chew on as you go on through life and this question comes up in your mind again sometime and you're in a predicament and you don't know what God wants you to do. This is something for you to think about. But going on from that, then the question is, what is the sign that he asked for here?
2: It's very specific. I mean, there's not a whole lot of people that are gonna do this. Okay. Okay, but it's <laughs> it's the water. Then
0: offers to water the camera. Yeah, he wasn't gonna ask, she had to spontaneously offer it. Okay.
4: I was wondering if he was trying to think of some character quality that might be demonstrated.
0: I think what's been going on here is this guy's had three three weeks since he left Beersheba before he got to Nahor to think about how am I going to find a wife for Isaac? Now, if you were in that job, in that position, and I had that responsibility, what's one of the things you would have been thinking about for the last three weeks? Pardon
1: Water. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Her okay. Her character. Okay. 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 But he went time they, she was the only one to
3: get
4: water.
0: That's right. All the women, yeah, many women were coming, yeah.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: All those things are true, but I think you're missing one of the obviouses, obvious things. He's been thinking about Isaac, right? Wouldn't you been thinking about Isaac? I mean, you're not just going out, just finding a random bride for just some random. Per- you're, you're thinking about a bride for Isaac, right? So, one of the things he's doing in that three weeks is he's traveling uh, up the king's highway there on his way to Payden Aaron, leading those camels. And incidentally, he has some other servants with him. We'll see. It comes out in verse 32 and verse 59. You'll see that he also had some others with him that he took with him, okay? Which is significant when you think about what Rebecca offered to do. But, but as he's walking along, as he's traveling along, I think one of the things he's doing, he's thinking about this guy Isaac and what is Isaac like. Because if you were going to pick a wife for your son, or if you're going to pick a wife for somebody else's son, wouldn't it be one of the things you think about? Wouldn't it be, what is that son like? What is that young man like? What does he need in a wife? So, so he has obviously, it seems, constructed his sign in order to determine the quality, the characteristics of this woman. Because he wants a woman who is gracious, who is hardworking, who is hospitable. But because of the way he structures his sign, he discovers other things about him. And one of the things he finds, and forgive me for an anachronism here, but one of the things he finds that he's looking for is a type A personality. Go get her. Go get him. That's the kind of woman she is. And that's what we'll see as the story unfolds. Now, later in her life, that leads to problems. Okay. Uh, As we'll see, you know, Rebecca isn't, you know, doesn't get a perfect A plus score here in the story that unfolds over the next number of chapters. She makes some serious blunders. But but if we could characterize her in any way today i think i'd characterize her as a type a personality she's a go getter you know she eats it up she she's you know she not only gives him a drink but she takes the initiative and she says let me give water to your camels now the question is how much water does a camel drink <laughs> The nearest, I I got figures kind of all over the map, okay, in in the research I did. But the nearest figure I get is at one time, because there's a limit how much they could drink at one time to avoid uh, water intoxication. But at one time, a camel can drink up to 25 gallons of water. How many camels has he got? Ten camels took 10 and they were riding on something okay okay so he's yeah so we don't know he's got at least 10 camels okay so let's just operate off the of number 10 he's got 10 camels they drink up to 25 gallons a piece how big of a jar do you think she's carrying on her shoulder Two or five gallons. <laughs> 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 no i i wouldn't think more than five i mean i, sh- I you know i've lift a lot of five gallon buckets of paint in my line of work and i can tell you what wouldn't want them on my shoulders for very long, okay? Mm-hmm. So, gallon weighs about five pounds. Oh, gallon weighs eight pounds. Eight pounds. Eight, eight pounds, yeah. Pounds. yeah. yeah. Gallon weighs about eight pounds. So, so, you know, three to five gallons of water, let's say, in her jar. We don't really know that for sure, okay? And she's going to water. She's got to pull up 200 to 250 gallons of water. And you'll notice it says she goes down and she comes up. She goes down and she... So she's going, so the the well, actually it's called in one place a spring, is in a recessed area. It's probably down in a wadi. So she has to kind of go down some steps to the spring, fill the spring, come back up, and she has to do this multiple times. This process probably had to take her at least an hour. So now when you see that she says, I'll water your camels also, now you realize she's not type A. She's obsessively type A. You know, I have daughters like this who have no comprehension of what it means to say, no, I can't do this. <laughs> this is more than I am able to do, okay? And, and, and this woman is this way. She's just a go-getter. And this is the kind of person that the servant wants to find for Isaac. Why? What kind of a person is Isaac? Well, we really haven't seen much about it. The only real clue we've gotten to Isaac's personality so far is how willingly he submitted to his father there at Moriah. But that actually is an indication, not only of his faith and his submission, but to some degree of his personality. And as we go through the story and we learn more and more about Isaac, we'll see that that really is his personality. He's kind of laid back. He's kind of easy going. And we're going to get to this chapter where he has these repeated confrontations with uh, the king of Gerar and some things about some wells. And in every case, Isaac just backs off. And then something happens and he backs off again. And then something happens and he backs. He's just an easy going, laid back, don't ruffle my feathers, you know, type of guy. And if anything's going to get done in that household, he needs a type A personality, okay? Now, I I just want to encourage some of you guys uh, who are more laid back and you married a type A, okay? you know, oftentimes I think in evangelical circles, we think the woman's just got to be the submissive, you know, quiet, reticent one. And the, and the husband's got to be the type A. And, you know, and he's not the type A. He's not leading his family. He's not a godly head. Well, that's just not true. It's just not true. And it's interesting in Ephesians chapter 5 that God does not never, in fact, nowhere in the New Testament does God tell a man to take the headship in his home. The scripture does not teach a man to take the headship in his home he already is the head and the key is not for a man to take headship but to figure out given the man's personality given the man's temperament what does that headship look like and both the man and the wife need to function with an understanding of what the headship in that particular family and in that particular home looks like okay and so what we have here is we have a guy who's fairly reticent, fairly laid back, Isaac, and he needs a go-getter for a wife. And that's what he's going to get. Okay. Now, as I say, because Isaac doesn't exercise his headship in righteous ways at times, it's going to lead to problems. Okay. But we'll get to that story and we'll deal with that when the time comes. What, we, what we're looking at now is just how the servant... Uh, how the servant comes upon this sign. So he sets out this sign. He says, "Lord, this is what I want. This is what I desire, so that I can know that know that you've given me success, and so that I can know that 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 uh, that you are showing loving kindness to my master." Okay. So, so he sets forth this sign. What happens next? Before
4: he had finished speaking.
0: Before he had finished speaking. Now, what's going on here, folks, is the providence of God. Now, there are some times in our lives when God's direction is very clear and we know we know what he's doing and because he's told us what he's doing. And then there's this whole idea of providence that God is just because he is God and because he's sovereign and because he controls the whole universe, that he is sovereignly just orchestrating events and orchestrating what people do. And within his providence, everybody is still exercising their free will. Everybody is still making free choices and free decisions. But God, because he is so great and he's able to orchestrate all those things in order to accomplish his purpose. So even before the servant has prayed, the providence of God has been at work so that this woman finishes all of her chores, all of her other chores, just at the right time. And decides, okay, now I need to go get the water. And she picks up the jar, and, and she goes out, and she stops to chat with a friend, you know, on the way out for a few minutes, to, to time everything just exactly right, so that just as this guy is finishing his prayer, bingo, the woman arrives whom God has appointed. Now, actually, he's been going, he's been directing in her life for a whole lot longer than that. Because it's imperative that Isaac have a wife who is from the righteous line and that he have a wife who has the kind of personality and the kind of character qualities that this woman has. And God has been developing this for many, many years, long before this event unfolds for us in chapter
4: 24. Just a second ago,
0: you said bingo. Is there any... <laughs> There's no <generic laughs> that.
1: <trash.
0: laughs> yeah, Good point. I don't, I don't want to <laughs> leave anybody unclear on that one. So, so she arrives and he, and he runs to her. How does he pick her out? Well, let me back up for a moment now because I told you we should do this. What does everybody know at this point? What do we know? We know she's, We know a whole lot more than that. We know the whole story, right, at this point? I mean, even if we haven't read the whole story, we, we, we know. Because we got clear back in chapter 22. Rebecca was mentioned, right? Okay. So we got a foreshadowing clear back in chapter 22. And now we get up here and we find, out, okay, this, you know, she's the daughter of Bethuel, who's who's the son of, of Milcah who was uh who is Nahor's wife, who Nahor was Abraham. You know, we know the whole story. So we know well obviously. So so the narrator has been very careful to clue us in. So we got the whole you know we pretty well know, even though we don't know how it's all going to unfold, unless you've read the chapter, we don't know how it's, we we know. You know, we know. Okay. It's if it, he he gave it away, okay? But what does a servant know? It's a girl coming to draw water? It's a girl come to draw water and what? What else does he know about her? Beautiful. She's hot.
4: <laughs> She's good
0: looking, okay? So
4: any guy for starting to let him you try the best looking one first. Yeah,
0: absolutely. That's right, that's right. Yeah, that's right. He goes for the best looking one first. What else does he know? He knows all that, and there's one other thing he knows.
1: <laughs>
0: what else does he know? One other thing he knows. Don't ever forget this, he knows this. He's known this since he left Beersheba. God's with him. God's with him. He knows that. And he knows this woman's good looking.
4: Okay? She's very beautiful.
0: And so he runs over to her and he pops his question. Okay? Will you give me a drink? Yes?
4: We
0: we don't know. No and she may have been the first one. I think think two things. I think she was the first one and I think she was beautiful and I think that's why he went for her. But notice he had to run to her. He was some distance away. So he runs to her and he says, would you give me a drink of water from your jar? Okay, so here's this woman is carrying now this jar of water that weighs, what, 25, 50 pounds on her shoulder. She's just gone to all the trouble to get it up there on her shoulder and then just climbs the steps up from out of this depressed area wherever the well is. And this total stranger comes up to her, you know, and asks for water. Now, what does Rebecca know at this point? She doesn't know anything. She doesn't have a clue. She has no... Of course, she sees this guy with his camels and everything, but presumably that's fairly common. This is... This is on a on a major uh, uh, trade route of the day. And so presumably it's fairly common to encounter caravans and things like that. Yes. Uh, some speculate that he was. I don't think he was that old or he wouldn't have been one sent on this journey. And two, he wouldn't have been running, which the scripture says he ran. So so I don't think he was terribly old, but he Yeah. <laughs> But he was presumably... Okay, when I say he wasn't old, I mean he wasn't old like Abraham. I I assume he was 60, 70 years of age. Yeah, But hey, I still run and I'm over 60. I I don't run very often, but when I... No, never mind. Go ahead. Is that she didn't
1: turn away. You know, she saw him. She called
2: him, my Lord.
4: And
3: she didn't tell me, like, she quickly lumbered through one of the camels. I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, she probably had sharp eyes. She probably saw him tell me when the voice started, you know, she was out there. So
4: she wasn't afraid.
0: She wasn't afraid. She's very gracious. She's very respectful. She's very hospitable. She's just a really neat woman. Some of those were back behind, so he had those back behind the tent yeah.
1: somewhere.
4: I dunno He was not in the dumpers in a way yet. He was waiting for the time to say, can I have a little water? Yeah. So what I what we had. Yeah. Yeah. And he
0: had others with him. And here's the significant thing too. Rebecca. She she lowers her jar and she said, it says he, he she gave him to drink and I you know at that point I just in a little sanctified imagination here, I think she's looking around you know while she's giving the servant a drink and she's going he needs water he's got camels here she, she sees the need she sees the need she sees the need she's such a cool woman she really is a neat woman she sees the need now here's the other thing. Remember, we haven't seen this yet, but we will see it. He has other he has other guys with him. He has other men with him. Now, if you were in that position and his camels needed water and he had other men with him, what did you what would you say?
1: Let them do it. No, but, so attitude. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but isn't that our attitude oftentimes? When God gives us an opportunity to serve and we look around and we see other people who aren't serving and we go, well, why aren't they serving? Why don't they do it? But that's another quality we see in Rebecca here. She doesn't have that attitude. She doesn't go, well, let those guys do it. You know, he, his camels need water. They can take care of it. I mean, obviously they've been doing it all the, you know, they've been traveling for three weeks. They've been doing, you know, they've been taking care of themselves. They don't need her. But whether they need her or not is not the point. She just wants to be a servant. She sees a need, and she wants to fulfill it. And so she does. Well, there's some some really cool things here I want to get to before we quit today. So I want to keep pressing on uh, because, uh, to me, they just they just blow me away. These things. Okay, so so she offers to, to to water his camels, and and now we know how much she was really offering to do. She really, she's really going to put herself out. I can imagine the people back at the house are going, "Where's Rebecca? You know, we sent her out an hour and a half ago for water, and she's not back yet." You know. And so she she does this. She goes to the, and what's the servant doing?
4: Why? How is he watching? He's
1: studying,
4: He's studying her.
0: How is he studying her? Silently. He's not saying a word. He's not cooling her into anything. So again, she doesn't know anything yet. What does he know now?
4: <laughs> <laughs>
0: what, what? What does he know now? He knows more than he knew before. What does he know?
4: Well, he was watching to see still that she was the one. Okay, but wait, wait.
0: Getting ahead of me. What, do, what does he know? Okay, he's waiting to see something. That's true. But what does he know? Okay, he knows she's fulfilling the sign. The sign has been answered.
4: Okay? But now... What? He doesn't. He doesn't know for sure. He
0: doesn't know for sure. He has the sign, but he doesn't know for sure. See, that's my point that I made about signs earlier. The sign isn't the final answer. You see, there are still some questions he doesn't have answered, like what?
1: <laughs>
0: if she'll accept? Who is her family? Is she even available for marriage? He doesn't know she's a virgin. You know, he doesn't know any of these things. All he knows is that God has apparently answered his sign. This is good, he thinks, but he doesn't jump to conclusions. He's still going to wait for clear direction from God. So even if you've got a sign, that's not necessarily the conclusion of the matter. And God doesn't want us, once we've got a sign, to put our brain in neutral okay? a or a substitute for faith. OK, so so how is he going to get his questions answered? Okay, but even before he does that, what's he going to do? He's going to ask some questions. Okay, So he asks two questions. He asks, Who is your father? And is there room at your house to lodge? Okay. Now, what is he trying to find out? Whose family is she? Because he knows why that's important. What was the significance of the gifts? You that oh, I forgot the gifts. Oh, I'm in a hurry and I forgot the gifts. Okay.
1: <laughs>
0: well, she, she did work hard. And so he pulls out these gifts. The, the nose ring and the two bracelets. It was a nose ring, by the way. Uh, so, he, so, so he pulls out a nose ring and he pulls out. The, so the first thing you think is, well, he's rewarding her for her hard work. But these gifts are extravagant. These are extravagant gifts. So he is, in one sense, rewarding her for her work. But he's obviously, he's obviously showing who he is. He's obviously saying, hey, lady, there's more going on here than you think.
1: I think he's to say this. Bob, we have to rethink the nose ring. They have to weigh
0: at least half a second of gold. <laughs> so, so he pulls out these gifts. And, and now what does the woman know? Now, now what does Rebecca know? He knows this guy's wealthy. And he's got an agenda. He's got a purpose. She has no clue what it is. She still has no idea who this guy is. And so he asks the question, two questions, because he's trying to find out. Okay, I asked God for the one, but it's got to be from Abraham's family. So is I mean, what is what are the chances? This lady is from Abraham's family. She's just one of the women of the city. Okay, so he's he's trying to find that out, but he doesn't just ask her outright. You know, he's he's being, you know, he's being uh, discreet here. OK, and uh, and so, yes, but she thinks what does she think is the reason is he's asking? He just needs a place to say. OK, so she's still oblivious. OK. And then she answers. She says, well, I'm the daughter of Bethuel. Uh, who was who Milka bore to Nahor? Now, if you're the servant, what's happening? Boom, 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 boom. Just like that, you know. Just, you know, in rapid succession, you know, Bethuel, Nahor, Terah, you know, the whole thing. It all just falls into place. And at this point, your heart's going boom, 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 boom. She's completely clueless. Until the next thing happens. Which is what? He worships God. God. In what position? He's prostrate on the ground, actually. She says, well, uh, my dad, Bethul. he's, you know, he's the uh, the son of Nelka who she bore to, to Nahor. Boom. The servant falls down, face on the ground, and she hears this. Now, before you, before we read this prayer, remember what she's grown up in. She has grown up in a family of idol worshippers. Her grandfather, Kara, was an idol worshiper. Her brother is an idol worshiper. She has grown up among idol worshippers. And now she has seen this man fall to the ground, right in front of her. And she hears him say this. Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward his master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. Now, we just read through that prayer and we just go, oh, Mm -hmm. nice prayer. What if this was the first real prayer you ever heard? And what if this was the first time you'd ever seen someone worship the unseen God? What was she doing when she was standing there and this guy was laying in the dirt in front of her saying these things? Well, I think one of the things she was doing, she was looking around. She's going, where's the God? Who's he praying to? And for the first time in her life, she's, she's made aware that there's a God you cannot see. She, for the first time in her life, she's made aware that there is a God who doesn't need the thought and art of man to form him. As Paul says on Mars Hill in Acts chapter seventeen, she's never seen this before. She's never seen someone worship an unseen God. And here's this guy; he falls on the ground and he begins to worship this unseen God, and and he calls him by name. What's he call him? Yahweh. For the first time in her life, she hears the name of the living God spoken in worship. She's never seen this before, never heard this before. What's the next name she hears? Abraham. Now, what does that conjure up in her mind? What do you think she thinks about Abraham?
1: How uncle that left How left was that crazy
0: uncle. He left,
1: he he left, left sixty Abraham years, years ago. Now.
0: Long everybody talks about the crazy uncle. He, said, he
1: said, My master,
0: Abraham, Jesus. He has Yeah. You're getting ahead of me, Tom. First we got okay, for this so first she hears the name of the living God. Then she hears the name Abraham, who is, the last she heard, the crazy uncle who got a vision and ran off to who knows where. He didn't even know where. You know, the guy's crazy. But he got a vision from God. Suddenly she hears about this uncle that nobody's heard from in, what, 60 years or however long it's been. 65 years. Nobody's heard from him. Okay. So she hears about this uncle that everybody says is the crazy uncle who ran off to who knows where. And she knows that the god of that uncle is named Yahweh and he cannot be seen. And then she finds out that this guy isn't Abraham. This guy isn't powerful and rich. All this wealth that he's got is just a token of the wealth and the greatness of this crazy uncle. Uncle who ran off to who knows where following what knows what god who knows what god and suddenly it's all starting to make sense and then she understands as he talks about the loving kindness and the truth of god to abraham that what she's seen here the camels and the bracelets and the ring and and everything else and all these things she's seen that it is merely a token of the great blessing that the God, Yahweh, has placed upon this crazy uncle everybody's been laughing about for 65 years. And I think at that very moment, and for, <clears throat> forgive me here if I'm reading a little between the lines, but I think it is at this moment that the seed of faith begins to spring and bear fruit in the heart of Rebekah. And then she hears him say that God has guided him to the house of his master's brothers. And now she knows more about this God in a moment's prayer in which she has been eavesdropping than she has known all her life. She knows his greatness. She knows his covenant faithfulness. That's the word loving kindness there. Hesed. His covenant faithfulness. That this God enters into covenants with people. And then keeps them. And that he blesses beyond measure. And that he is faithful. And that he is true. To those who worship him. And the most startling thing of all. Is that
4: he is I'm saying, Rick, Yeah, the the Yeah. It's
3: this man that causes God. Yeah. And it's a faithful to worship.
0: The contrast in her mind had to be so great. And I just want you to just think about that. And maybe this week, you know, while you're waiting for the rest of the story, you know. Think about how in a matter of moments, in such fast succession, these startling truths were revealed to this young woman. And and many of us, I'm afraid, if we were confronted with that much truth that quickly, we would just reel backwards in stagger and unbelief. But as we will learn with Rebecca, she does not. She is a remarkable woman. She is a fantastic... I can't imagine a better woman to become a part of a covenant promise than this woman. And She just responds in faith and within 24 hours, she's on one of those camels. Headed to somewhere she doesn't know to marry some guy she's only heard about his glory. And that's all she knows. And she knows something else. She knows now that there is an unseen God who is far greater than all the household gods of Laban. It's a fantastic story, isn't it? Okay, well, we'll pick it up again
1: next week.